Hey, hey, welcome to JC Talks, a leadership podcast where we help you live an all-in life and lead all-in teams and organizations. I'm your host, yours truly, JC Furtado Prater. Grateful you have joined me for the next few moments. We're on episode 93, and we're talking about the fact that foundations matter. Foundations matter. I'm reading this book, and I just jumped into it. I think I'm still in the introduction. So what we're going to learn about today is actually from the introduction. And I'm going to see if I can put all of this together. There's a lot of great leadership lessons in this. Um, so, so the book is called Why Nations Fail. Uh, it is by James A. Robinson and Duran Ace Moglu. I could be saying that name wrong, but that's a very cool name. Duran Ace Moglu. Uh, and here's kind of the subtitle, The Origins of Power prosperity and poverty this is a new york times and wall street journal bestseller uh i'm just got into it i'm 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 personally interested in this idea of international development how do you build countries how do you build nations um what holds some nations back from uh from what it holds other nations backs um excuse me i didn't even say that right what holds some nations back while you have other nations that are able to thrive and succeed that's what i meant to say so I'm going to try to make sense of this because I, I'm going to jump all the way around and I, I'm going to try to read some stuff to you from the book and just kind of explain uh, this idea that foundations matter. How you start something typically is how that thing is going to go unless there's a lot of work to transform it. So how we start something is very, very, very important. And this is, and I will tell you this from experience, probably on the negative side, more on the negative side, this goes for relationships. If we jump into a relationship and it's toxic at the beginning, unless there is a ton of work, it's going to be toxic five years later and six years later and eight years later, nine years later. Um, That happens. How we start a business matters. If we make, I started a nonprofit a few years ago. And I went into it with a buddy of mine and we, we were starting this nonprofit. It was an after school program and it really should have been a phenomenal uh, nonprofit. First of all, I didn't have any experience doing this, but it still was a ton of fun to dive in. Where we got wrong was when we started the board of directors, because you have to have one when you start a nonprofit. I tried to put number one, I tried to put too many people on it. And I found people who were friendly to me, or at least we, we got along well together, um, but they weren't the type of people who should be running a nonprofit uh, you know, a business from the position of board of directors. Um, I found, and I don't even know what I was thinking, but I was doing the best I could with the tools I have, but I, I, I put together a team and it was the most dysfunctional team ever. And that shows you at the time, my leadership skills. Uh, I had an advisory board and they were actually a pretty phenomenal team, but an advisory board is you, you kind of ask people to join your board who are well, you know, upstanding citizens of the community, but they really have nothing to do with your organization. You're allowed to put their name on your materials and their, your, uh, their name on your, uh, um, you're on your website. So for a lot of people, it makes it look, you know, like this is a, yeah, this is a legit nonprofit. Look at all these people on the advisory board, but it's the board of directors who really has a lot of power in a nonprofit, especially a brand new nonprofit. And so I didn't know uh, later on, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and uh, he was actually one of my advisory board members. And I was telling him about the dysfunction. He said, he said, he said, JC, he said, man, 
that where you went wrong in this is that you put a bunch of people on that nonprofit that have their own idea about how this nonprofit should go when you're the executive director. You should have put people uh, on this who were sold out to you and wanted to see you succeed versus come in with their own idea about how this nonprofit should go. And that's what I did. And, and it turned out to be massively dysfunctional. And um, it just didn't work out. We actually uh, we actually had to remove a couple board members and and uh, it just was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And so I'm saying all that to say that had that organization continued to go, unless there were a lot of really hard moments, and that probably means getting rid of people, uh, finding other people, a lot of hurt feelings, uh, that nonprofit probably would have never survived on its own anyway. It didn't survive because I had to walk away. I actually got a full-time job and that full-time job said, hey, we need for you to focus 100% over here, not the nonprofit. So I had to walk away from it. But had I stayed in the nonprofit, unless we were willing to, to make a whole bunch, and I was, you know, unless I was willing to get coached and unless we were willing to make a lot of really hard choices, uh, that nonprofit probably would have not survived. So the lesson of all that is that foundations matter, right? So now that's just a small nonprofit profit with like a $20,000, as much as we got up to budget. Maybe we had like $25,000 that we got to. Uh, this, was not, uh, this was not some major nonprofit that we saw crash, but it was a great lesson for me in starting something well and surrounding yourself with great people. So let me read some excerpts from this book right here, Why Nations Fail. And we'll just kind of talk through uh, why this is really important. Uh, foundations are extremely important to where the organization is going to go. So I'm on page 11 here, and it says this early Spanish, and as we will see, English colonists were not interested in tilling the soil themselves. They wanted others to do it for them, and they wanted riches, gold, and and silver to plunder. So this book starts off at the very intro, and it looks at, uh, it it, it starts by looking at the city, and I'm going to go back to page one here. And it's going to say something about it. It says this book is about. So so the preface says this book is about the huge differences in incomes and standards of living that separate the rich countries of the world, such as the U.S., Great Britain, Germany, from the poor, uh, such as those in sub-Saharan Africa, Central America and South Asia. And it starts right away by going to a city called Nogales, Nogales, which has a. Uh, part of the city is on the U.S. side. It's in Arizona. And the other part of the city is located in Mexico. And it, it talks about the stark differences in the U.S. side of that city and in the Mexican side of that city. So then it goes all the way back to how were these two countries started? How were they founded? And if you go all the way back and look at Mexican history, you go all the way back to Spain, you had Spanish explorers and it lists so many different names here. Let me see if I can find any of them. Uh, well, this is talking about Buenos Aires. Um, okay. I, I don't have time to go on all this, but it talks about many different people and they pretty much came from Spain and Portugal, um, Spain, Portugal, and Great Britain. These were the countries that pretty much colonized most of the world. Okay. And so you have, uh, uh, Spanish explorers coming over to Mexico and they're looking at the foundations as, as to why is the country where it is today, let's go all the way back and see how a country was formed and see how it was started. And when the 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 uh, the 
the foreigners or invaders, however you want to call them, when they came into a country, how did they settle that country? And so again, reading this early Spanish, and as we will see, English colonists were not interested in tilling the soil themselves. So the strategy was to come in and you saw the natives, right? I'll call them that. That's not, I know that's not what we're supposed to call them, but this is what they would refer to them as. These are people who are here. They are the indigenous people, um, but they would consider them a lower group of people. But the strategy was find the people who are already there, subject them to your will, whatever that will is, put them underneath you, and then have them do the work. And then you sit on top of these people as kings and queens. That's how you enter a new world. And so it says that the colonists were not interested in tilling the toy themselves. They wanted others to do it for them. They wanted the riches, gold, and silver to plunder. So give us the riches, give us the gold, uh, give us the silver, give us all of this. Um, but we don't want to have to do any work for it. So let me fast forward here, find another place to read here. I, I did a lot of highlighting here. Um, okay, it says that throughout the Spanish colonial world in the Americas, similar institutions and social structures emerged. After an initial phase of looting and gold and silver lust, the Spanish created a web of institutions designed to exploit the indigenous peoples. The full gamut of the encomienda, uh, mita, uh, repartimiento, and trajín was designed to force indigenous people's living standards down to a subsistence level and thus extract all income in excess of this for Spaniards. This was achieved by expropriating their land, forcing them to work, offering low wages for labor services, imposing high taxes, and charging high prices for goods that were not even voluntarily bought. Though these institutions generated a lot of wealth for the Spanish crowd and made the conquistadors uh, and their descendants very rich, they also turned, watch this, and this is really important, they also turned Latin America into the most unequal continent in the world and sapped much of its economic potential. So there you go. So you look at the uh, how the Spaniards, uh, how they came into Mexico and Central America and South America, they subjected the people to their will. They said, we're not doing the work, you're going to do the work, and we're going to uh, we're going to build systems that hold you down and keep us on top. And this is what you see. This was the foundation for what we see today in Mexico and Central America and South America. And I'm not ragging on these countries or these places in the world. Okay. I'm not trying to be negative towards them, but we do see, and I live right here in San Diego, California, in just 10 miles. I, I could go 10 miles right now. And there's a world filled with poverty like you can't even imagine. I've gone down there and, I, and I've done some mission work. And I remember the first time I came down, uh, I went down to Mexico and I went to a very poor area of Tijuana. Uh, I came back and I sat in my condo and I, and I have a condo. I don't even have I, I live in a nice neighborhood, but it's a condo. And, and I sat in my condo and I thought, how in the world am I living with this? And I actually went over to the pool. We have this nice little pool and this jacuzzi. And I sat down and I said, I have way too much. Uh, I need to get rid of some of this. Um, I, I just recognize that I have, even for what I have, I, I'm, I live like a king compared to most of the rest of the world. 
And so I now I, I don't have that same feeling now because I've I've grown and I've come to understand and I've been in those neighborhoods and you see how happy they are with their own circumstances. That doesn't mean we need that we don't need to help. But what I'm saying is I walked away from that mindset of hey, feeling sorry for everybody else who's not me. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this is how Latin America, Central America, South America, this is how they were founded. Okay. Now let's move to the United States. Uh, and it says here, um, an attempt by King Philip of Spain to invade England sent political shockwaves around Europe. It is thus no coincidence that the English began their colonization of North America at exactly the same time. But they were already latecomers. So North America, the people, the uh, the Brits who were who were coming over to uh, to North America, they were actually late to the game. They chose North America not because it was attractive, but because it was all that was available. That's phenomenal to hear. Like we were the leftovers. Everybody wanted Central, South America. They wanted some of these other places. It, 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 it even says right here, the desirable parts of the Americas where the indigenous population to exploit was plentiful and where the gold and silver mines were located had already been occupied. The English got the leftovers. That's the USA. The English got the leftovers. Okay, now let's move forward a little bit. It mentions some people here, Captain Christopher Newport, Jamestown. I have underlined here, it says this, the notion that the settlers themselves would work and grow their own food seems not to have crossed their minds. That is not what conquerors of the new world did. So again, the original uh, uh, the original mindset of coming over to the Americas and coming over to North America by the Brits was, hey, let's come in. Let's find the people who are living there. Let's subject them to our rule. This is kind of how it's done. And this is how you take over country. They'll do all the work and we get all the riches. That's how it works. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine that this is how years, hundreds of years ago, that this is how we, you know, this is how societies were formed, with let's go in and knock these people down as far as we can and make them work for us. It's not even our place. We have no history there. We have no right. You know, really, there's no right there. And yet we're going to come into these countries and knock them all the way down and make them work for us. Okay, now watch this. Now, here's the difference. Uh, coming over here, I'm on page 21. It says, as the winter of 1607 closed in, the settlers in Jamestown began to run low on food. And the appointed leader of the colony's ruling council, Edward Marie Wingfield dithered indecisively. The situation was rescued by Captain John Smith. We've heard of this, okay? Uh, and it gives some of his story. We don't need to go this, but it says down here, it was Smith who saved the colony. He initiated a series of trading missions that secured vital food supply. So he began trading with the people who were located, what we would call the indigenous people. He began to trade with them. And uh, that's kind of how it started. That's how he rescued the early settlers of Jamestown and of what we call the USA Today. I have underlined here, Smith's life was saved only at the intervention of, I can't say the name, but the daughter Pocahontas, that, that's not really important. Uh, the colonists of Jamestown learned little from this initial experience. As 1608 proceeded, they continued their quest for gold and precious metals. They still did not seem to understand that to survive, they could not rely on the locals to feed them through either coercion or trade. So, so the locals in, in North America, well, what became known as the USA, they weren't as easy to subjugate. They Either they heard the stories, they knew what had happened to other people from other countries, but they weren't as easy. They weren't as, um, I hate to use the word gullible, um, but it wasn't as easy to subjugate them as it was 
down in uh, in the areas of what we now know of Mexico, Central America, and South America. So it was Smith who was the first to realize that the model of colonization that had worked so well for the Cortes and Pizarro simply would not work in North America. Okay. And then down here, uh, there was, there's a quotation that says that there was no talk, no hope, no work, but dig gold, refine gold, load gold. Uh, Coming over here to page 23, Smith realized that if there was going to be a viable colony, it was the colonists who would have to work. So if you're going to come over to America, it wasn't about subjugating the people to your will. It was about the fact that you were then going to have to work. And this is where the, the saying came from. Let me just read this. It said, Smith did not want any more useless goldsmiths. Uh, again, they, I guess they'd send a lot of goldsmiths over thinking that we're going to subjugate these people. We're going to get a lot of gold and silver, and then we'll just be rich goldsmiths. He said, once more, Jamestown survived only because of his resourcefulness. He managed to cajole and bully local indigenous groups to trade with him. So he did it through trade, not through subjugation. And when they wouldn't, he took what he could. Back in the settlement, Smith was completely in charge and imposed the rule that he that will not work shall not eat. And because of this, Jamestown survived a second winter. Let me see if there's anything else that I should read here. I think the point is clear. Okay. I underlined this right here. So let me just read this last thing that I have underlined here. And I think you get the lesson. I'm on page 26. It took the Virginia company 12 years to learn its first lesson that what had worked for the Spanish in Mexico and in South America, in, in, in Central and South America would not work in the North. The rest of the 17th century saw a long series of struggles over the second lesson, that the only option for an economically viable colony was to create institutions that gave the colonists incentives to invest and to work hard. As North America developed, English elites tried time and time again to set up institutions that would heavily restrict the economic and political rights for all but a privileged few of the inhabitants of the colony, just as the Spanish did. Yet in each case, this model broke down as it had in Virginia. So this is the difference. And this is powerful right here. This is the difference between uh, what we see in Mexico, Central America, South America versus what you see in the USA and probably in Canada as well. Both of these territories, as they were back in the day, were settled with different mindsets. Actually, I could probably say both were settled with the same mindset. However, the prevailing mindset that won out for uh, for the USA was, hey, we can't subjugate these people like they could. Uh, We got kind of second dibs. These people are smarter. They've heard some stories, whatever it was, but they won't be subjugated like the people to the South will. So if we're going to build this country, we have to do the work. And so immediately because of that, and again, this took several years to get, so this wasn't right away, but through some bumps in the road, uh, the settlers, the early settlers in the United States of America realized that if we're going to make this happen, we have to do the work. And they tried to set up these institutions that will hold people down. And again, that's a whole other conversation because there are many people who believe that there is uh, that there are still systems that are set in place in the USA to hold people down. That's for another conversation. Uh, But the point I'm trying to make is this. In the USA, the original settlers, when they first came over, uh, had to, not because they wanted to, but they had to, uh, they had to actually do the work themselves. So the entire foundation of the USA was based on this idea that if you don't work, you don't eat. Go just south of the border. 
10 minutes from where I live and their systems are much different. Their systems, because of how it was started, are run from the top down and we keep all the resources at the top and the rest of you stay down uh, stay down there because that's the way the system is designed. And I got to tell you, as you read that, and I'm looking forward to reading more in this, and and as I get more information, I'll share with you on the podcast, because as you read this, this sounds really depressing because then it sounds like, I mean, you've got hundreds of years, hundreds, sometimes for some of these countries, thousands of years that have passed and they've been subjugated. How do you transform that culture? You, you can go in and throw money at the problem all you want. You can build schools, which is what my hope is, too. That's my ultimate goal is, is to go to places and to partner and to build schools. But I don't even know if some of these countries will allow us to go down there and build schools. Why? Why would they want that to happen? Why, uh, uh, you know, right. Why would they want schools that will educate people and they'll be able to rise up and maybe take some back of that power? I don't know. But here's the point I'm trying to make. How we start something. Okay often will determine how long that person, how, how, uh, how successful that thing will become. So if we start a business and from the very beginning, we have a business, like I shared with you at the beginning, we have a nonprofit that was started with the wrong people, uh, wrong mindset, wrong vision, uh, had no clues to what I was doing. Uh, had that nonprofit stuck around, I, I, I think we would be struggling to make this thing work because it just was not started. Uh, it, it didn't have a very strong foundation at the beginning at all. Okay. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, but the other aspect is, is, and this is probably a conversation for another time. If you do start some, something the wrong way, a country or a city or a, uh, a, 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 a business, you know, whatever it might be, or a, a product or a service, you know, how do you turn it around? And obviously we know it's going to be through a series of really hard choices, but another aspect of this, I think that's really important for us to understand is that when you go into an organization and it's not what it should be, or you go into a city and it's not what it should be, or you go into a country and it's not what it should be. Instead of judging exactly what you see, realize that there are things that created, um, there's a history that created what you're seeing in this moment. I just saw a great saying recently that said that when you meet somebody, uh, they're, they're giving you the very best that they can, right? But you have to understand that they have 24 hours a day, just like you do, and you're seeing them for a half hour, and maybe what you're seeing is not exactly the best. You got to understand that they have an entire story, just like you have an entire story. That that that's that's the same for this. If you go to an impoverished neighborhood, you have to understand that there are probably decades, uh, and maybe scores, and you know maybe hundreds of years that have made that city and made that neighborhood exactly where it is. And so there has to be compassion. There has to be you know, empathy. There has to be this desire to say, if I really want to create long-term change, I'm going to have to stick around for the long term. I'm going to have to be patient on this because here, here's the deal. This situation, whatever the situation is, didn't get like this overnight. It took years, decades, scores, hundreds of years to get here. So it may take years, decades, scores, hundreds of years to crawl out of it. Right. And in order now, hopefully an organization is not the same. But if you go into an organization and it looks that same way, you have to understand it may take years to turn the culture around, you know, to turn the culture around. I'm on staff at a church and I, I do it part time. And we just hired 
a new senior pastor to come in and he's going to take over fully starting in January. And he's very excited about the job and he's very excited about what he's going to do. And he has a very strong ideas for what he wants to do. And I want him to succeed. I hope he does succeed. But one of the things that I've been trying to hint is it may take longer than what you think, because there's an established culture under one leader that has been set for over three decades and three decades doesn't turn around in, in, in three weeks, right? It doesn't turn around maybe even in three years. It may take, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years to transform the culture uh, to maybe what you want it to be versus what it is. So this is important for us to understand. Foundations matter. Change takes time. Okay. Now I'm saying that that's not what the book said. And more than likely, as I get into the book, it's, it's going to point out more facts and figures, and it's probably going to give exactly what I shared with you that change is going to take time. And in some of these countries, uh, it, it, it may be a lost cause in some ways because it's so entrenched in their mentality, in their psyche of the people that we are here to be subjugated. So anyway, uh, I went much longer than I thought I was going to go, but it's important for me uh, that you understand foundations matter. uh, Change takes time. uh, And so if you're going to go into an organization or a community, whatever it is, if you're going to try to lead a community or a church or a nonprofit, whatever it is, you got to understand that there's an established culture and it's going to take a long time to get that fixed. So if you're starting a business, if you're an entrepreneur, let me tell you this, how you start something will determine how it goes long-term. So start something well. I'm going to leave you with this blessing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I always appreciate that you're with me. It means a great time, a great deal that you give time out of your busy schedule to be with me. Let me read this for you. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be ever at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rain fall softly on your fields. And until we meet again, May God hold you in the hollow of his hand. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of JC Talks Leadership Podcast. I'll see you on the next one. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we offer episodes just like this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe to my podcast, JC Talks, a leadership podcast available on Apple, Spotify, Google, anywhere you get your podcast and be the first to get new episodes three times every week. I'll see you soon.